If something's not working, then stop and have a break and clear the head because, yeah, if your mind's chock-a-block full of things, then you're not going to get anywhere. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo-ho! Welcome to episode 59 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know whose head is chock-a-block. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And a very quick review to get us underway. Concise, interesting, but most of all useful. Five stars from FedEx Scout from the US. Information I can use in every episode for the semi-amateur racer. This podcast sets the standard. Keep up the good work. Wow, that is super cool, super short, but super cool, just the way I like it. And a reminder to you that if you do like the show, please take some time out and give us a review on iTunes. Bam, thank you very much. So the news this week, a couple of bits of news. There's a small race going on in Spain. No one's really heard of it. It's called the Welter. What can I say about the Welter? It's been pretty surprising so far. You have seen super wide bar Mr. Horner ripping it up and actually getting a chance to wear the jersey. He doesn't currently have it. It's on Nibali's shoulders. Surprise, surprise. But very exciting for him to come away with the win. Also to see Nicholas Roach come away with his first Grand Tour win, which actually surprised me because he's been around for a while and he has a lot of talent. I'm very surprised that I haven't seen him win before. But anyway, the US Pro Challenge wrapped up and we've got TJ Vangarderen coming away with some form. He just knows how to do it in front of a home crowd. I think that's got something to do with it because after his tour, he had to salvage something else from the year, even though he won Tour of Cali earlier on. The other race that's going on at the moment is the Tour L'Avenir in France, the race of the future, and it's for all the young guns and definitely the young guns coming out to play with Caleb Ewan showing his form again, rocking a win. I will link to a guy called Adam Fellon. He's a Canberra rider that's riding for the same team, and he's got a blog that he's documenting his daily take on the race itself. So I'll put the link in the show notes. Definitely check that out. As he says farewell to the mountains with a little piece of his own glory here as he races up where I think Sedetien is probably the most famous city as far as the sport of cycling is concerned. It used to be the capital of the manufacture of the bicycle. In he comes and a victory today and a big cheer from him now. As Ludo Dierksens wins the stage. I'm not sure whether you've ever heard of Ludo Dierksens. The Belgian rider that had a 12-year professional career that was marked as much by his aggressively fun character as it was by his results. Results that included a win in stage 11 of the 1999 Tour de France. What's remarkable about the Dierksens is that he was a spray painter in the DAF truck factory before turning pro at 29. It's an unlikely story and one that is definitely the exception in pro cycling rather than the rule. So he may have signed a pro contract late, but how long did it take him to get to that point? I really can't say for sure, but his Palmares has him winning races 10 years before that. Now, 10 years is quite significant, but is it the case that he did something wrong? If so, what did he do wrong? 
Of course, I have no idea what surrounds his unique circumstances, but it raises interesting questions. Questions like what factors go into predetermining someone's success at cycling? In this episode, I'm trying to explore the idea of talent, touching somewhat on development and taking a deep dive into the idea of being born with a gift. This topic is interesting from a semi-pro perspective, especially those that have entered cycling in later life. I hear a lot of self-defeating talk when it comes to riders and their own abilities or their supposed genetic makeup, and I'm asking the question, is there still hope for them? I'd like to talk a little bit about the ingredients of success because there are four. The first one is ability. You're born with a certain amount. You can't change that. You can take advantage of it if you want. It's not always politically correct to say this group of people has more ability than that group, but I'm sorry, some people have more ability than others. It's easy, easy to prove. Bring an Olympic female gymnast up here who's 4'10 and weighs 88 pounds, and next to her will stand Shaquille O'Neal. Which one of them would win in a shot-putting contest? I'll bet on Shaq. But which one of them would win on the back of a horse in the Kentucky Derby? And I don't think Shaq's horse would like that at all. <laughs> We're all designed to do different things. Some people are more better designed. In running, it's unfortunate because you can have two people who look the same, but they aren't. Physiologically or biomechanically, you can't see the difference. So it's not as easy to say this person's better than that person, but, but it's true. Then you have motivation. How much do you want to use the ability you have? You know, and some people have tremendous ability, but they don't want to do that. They want to do something else. And, and, the, and these two kinds together, you can have ability and motivation and they're champions. And you can have ability and no motivation and they're coach frustrators. Because <laughs> the coach sees the ability, but this guy wants to be a concert pianist. He doesn't want to be a runner. Or you've got no ability and motivation and they're self frustrators because they want to do it so badly and they really don't have the ability to do it. Funny thing is the way coaches treat them. You often hear the coach go to one of these, say, you know, son, if you just had some desire, you could be a really great athlete. I don't think they should, but they do. Any more than they should go to this guy and say, you know, son, you could be a really great athlete if you had some ability. (laughs) I mean, that's... You shouldn't do either one. As a coach, my job is to provide an environment so these people who aren't particularly motivated become motivated. It's not my job to motivate them. It's their job to become motivated because of what they're doing. And then you have opportunity. And, of course, that goes on and on and on. Where you live, if you're great ability and motivation to be a downhill skier, but you live in Miami, Florida, you're not going to do it. Sorry. Or if you want to be a great swimmer and you have ability to be a swimmer, but there's no pool or no lake or no river, you're not going to make it. I'm sorry. Or if you're a tennis player and you never get to play against somebody else. So this is important. And then direction tells you how, what kind of a training program you have. 
or your coach. When Jack Daniels was running through these four requirements, I bet you were making assumptions about what category you fit into, especially what do you believe your ability is? It's a biggie in cycling, but before I dig into ability though, what role do motivation and opportunity play in your success? Something a little personal about me is I believe I sit in the ability but no motivation category because I've always found it hard to train consistently. It's only been in the last few years that I've begun to really enjoy the process of training much more than the outcome itself and therefore the training has become much more motivating in itself. It's hard to develop motivation but understanding your why is something I have spoken about before and it could affect how long or how hard you train or even how long you stick with the bunch going over a tough climb in a race. It's definitely something worth considering but it's not groundbreaking stuff. The same can be said for opportunity. The starting price of a bike is quite expensive, as is the travel and the race fees that you have to fork out every year. So it's a contributing factor to inhibiting a rider from developing further. Now, while these really aren't going to help you develop your talent any further, understanding them will give you a better insight into why you do the certain things. But the really interesting stuff starts when you start looking at ability. And I'll split ability into two categories, physical and mental. A book by David Epstein's called The Sports Gene is a breakdown of the latest research into the nature versus nurture debate, and it's applied directly to sport. It debunks the idea that nurture, which is practice and environment, is the key to success, arguing with well-chosen examples that nature in the form of genetic makeup also has a crucial role to play. Regarding physical ability in cycling, something like reaching aerobic capacity in cycling is a gradual process, with some claiming that it takes five years for you to reach that aerobic capacity. Genetics play a role in how we get to this point, though, and that is what Epstein is saying. This is where the idea of talent comes from, or class, if you're a European cyclist. Because the definition of talent has actually changed over time. It's gone from the idea that it's a skill that pre-exists any attempt to train, to your ability to get more benefit from one hour of training than, say, your training partner that trains for the exact same hour. I've actually had this happen to me, and maybe you've experienced this as well, where I had a training partner when I was younger, and we pretty much did the same training week in and week out. And I believe that my ability or my response was better, and the results in training and racing definitely showed that at the time. So it kind of backs up this idea that it's a genetic disposition of responding better to the same amount of training, along with things like aerobic capacity and weight loss and and probably stretching even into the way you put on muscle, being genetic. Ouch. That is definitely bad news for people that are doubting their genetic ability as it is. There are ways to test this, but the recommendation is because the consumer-facing testing for mapping your genes is not as solid as the marketing would suggest, then steer clear of it for now because at this stage in the genome game, it really isn't worth it. But when we're talking about physical ability, this is only part of the equation. And I will admit that it's a big one when it comes to cycling, but really, when you look at it, we aren't reaching to win the tour or to be open road world champion. So stay with me on this because it is going to get better. But first, mental ability. Mental ability is what I'll call the genetic ability of the mind. Such things as responding under pressure, 
definitely play a large role in your ability to perform in a bike race. And there is a claim to genes, certain genes in the brain that are linked to picking up these types of skills quicker. These genes are reportedly associated with proteins in the brain, and it is a definite science fact that this is true. How much or to what extent it's true is yet to be totally explored, but I've got to say that is a double blow for any cyclists out there that don't have confidence in their ability to do certain things. And especially this can be backed up if we look at the professional peloton where the idea that cyclists would have certain innate qualities that are higher than average, I don't have anything to back this up, but something like your emotional response or pain tolerance could be a really good example of this. More likely a specific type of pain though, but because of a big part of racing bikes is simply pain management, then cyclists have to have a better way of adapting or adjusting to this. The first person that actually shot into my head was this guy. You know, I was planning on taking these secrets to my grave. And I don't know whether you have read The Secret Race or not, but what definitely strikes me about Tyler Hamilton is he's higher than normal ability to suffer and he admits it and he definitely has proven it over his career and I can't answer why it is the case but I will say I do believe that us mere mortals can train this area of our cycling and that is something that can be learned over time even the man himself says it's possible when you first start feeling that pain it's you kind of want to you want to back off but um I think it's some of the more experienced riders out here have seen it. Like you can, you can suffer more than you actually think. So how about other factors? Putting direct mental ability aside, how important is it to practice skills in cycling? Elements like tactics, bike handling, reading races. Part of me wants to say that skill isn't as important as a game like golf, for example, but really I think that's just me being naive. Of course in golf there's no physical element that's related to it other than some slight stamina for having to walk the course or whatever. But when it comes down to cycling, Yes, it leans more on the heavy of the physical side, but I definitely believe it's the case that we simply don't think about skills once we've mastered them. So take braking, for example. When was the last time you went into a corner at speed, made an emergency stop, and thought about how you distribute the braking as it's happening? It was probably very unlikely that you even thought about this at all. So there is going to be a lot of different skills that combine into being a complete cyclist. But I will say this, the idea of deliberately practicing at the edge of your ability is a hard one to transfer into cycling because even at the lower levels of racing, for example, if you don't have the fitness to attack, then you'll never learn how to attack. Well, you can try, but you'll never learn how to be in an attack or what to do in that situation. Sometimes it's just not possible, but I do see certain bottlenecks in skill development in cycling that can be worked on. Places that I can see with a clear path are things like mountain bike descending or dismounting and remounting in cyclocross, those can definitely be isolated from a certain fitness requirement and practiced in their own right. The path forward from where we are is, is always the same, and it goes through intensive, reaching, deep practice, and it goes through this intense identity ignition. Like Those two processes are always there, and the third one is this presence of someone next to them who understands the skill deeply and who has a connection to the person who is... 
What Daniel Coyle, author of the book, The Talent Code, says here really makes a lot of sense to me. And it's these skill-based elements of cycling that can help you reach your potential by growing, not being born with a gift. But is it as simple as this? You know, so a bunch, a group of really brilliant psychologists in the, in the field of expertise research have sat down and tried to figure out how long do you have to work at something before you become really good, right? And the answer seems to be, it's an extraordinarily consistent answer in an incredible number of fields, and that is you need to have practiced, to have apprenticed for 10,000 hours before you get good. So every great classical composer, without exception, composes for at least 10 years before they write their masterwork. Mozart, 10. Mozart is, is composing at 11, but he's composing garbage at 11. I mean, he doesn't produce something great until he's 20 two or 23. Malcolm Gladwell's idea from his book Outliers puts 10 years of practice until you are a master. Remember that 10 years of how long it took Ludo to get that pro contract? And this idea really has moved into popular culture where it is now a central concept related to development. As Epstein states, though, in an interview with NPR, it's become shorthand for practice. There's no denying practice is important, but it's the role of the scientist to figure out how important it is for each sport. So right now, it's my role to figure out how important it is for cycling. And yes, in cycling, I do see that the engine is ultimately what drives the rider, but it's a little more blurred when it comes to semi-pros. There are other factors when it comes to semi-pros because while the pros are looking to be the pinnacle of all humans with no restrictions withstanding, semi-pros are searching for the best performance based on a whole lot of different compromised factors. So for semi-pros, I see the combination of developing your engine as less important as the skills for a specific event. The time that it takes to develop your engine can be worked on optimizing and maximizing certain skills that will get you further quicker. So working out what skills in your discipline have a clear progression and having a time frame of intentional, well-planned and individualized development will help you develop it further. So here's Coyle talking about what he uncovered when writing The Talent Code. Your brain is, is built to grow in certain ways. And if you practice in a way that's aligned with that, if you go to the edge of your ability to the edge of your ability and make mistakes and fix and repeat and reach over and over again, right on the edge. You learn much, much faster. That type of practice is what we see at the talent hotbeds, and it's the kind of idea that we can steal to use in our own lives. So you talked a lot about practice, and what is effective practice? It has to do with isolating the skill that you want to get good at. When I visited some of these talent hotbeds, I saw some some crazy sights. I would go to a, a place... There's a tiny club outside of Moscow called Spartak where they've produced more top 10 players in the last 10 years than the entire United States on, on a single indoor court. What are they doing there? They're swinging in slow motion. They're slowing the motion down. They remove the ball. They don't use the ball. They simply work on that swing making small fixes. They use speed. They slow it down to magnify their errors, to really, really see what they're doing wrong. Because what you learn when you go to these talent hotbeds is that mistakes aren't really mistakes. Mistakes are information. How can you apply that to specific cycling skills? It really depends on the discipline that you're competing in. But I do believe 
that the example of mountain biking or cyclocross is a much better example than road cycling, but road cycling still has elements in it. So I know people that can't even stand up on a bike or they can't even turn around quickly in a 180 degree corner, for example. So these types of small skills, if you get them down, I believe that they will add up. It could also be a bigger picture thing where there is a certain bottleneck in your skills that's meaning that you can't actually unlock your physical fitness because you can't get past riding up a technical climb, for example. So these things, if you take into consideration the bigger picture, you'll be able to get an idea of what could be stopping you from moving forward if it is skill-based and then develop a plan or a map of how you can get past it. And a couple of final points here. This doesn't stop there though, because development really does include other valuable areas of growth, including psychological, cognitive, and emotional. There are plenty of areas to get the edge over the next guy. And the biggest takeaway that I want you to get from this episode is that talent development isn't only for the young or those with a certain ability. Everyone has a potential for improvement regardless of age or their beginning ability level. And the concepts of development can be applied regardless of where an individual is at. So remember that developing yourself is not an all or nothing concept. It's an individual's true capacity cannot be fully understood in the early stages, particularly if an athlete has not yet fully developed. So put some time and thought into what areas of cycling you can actively develop. Daniel's last point is direction and getting the right direction at the right time will help you clarify what to focus on so you can get the most out of your training. Now, moving into the tech hacks and products section, I want to talk about a product today, but I'm being a little cheeky because I'm using it for myself and some self-promotion, but I couldn't think of anywhere else to put this, and I want to use this section in this episode to share with you an idea that I'm actually really, really excited about. I want to work it out with you and everyone else that's listening, and I want to lay out my idea and get some feedback from you. So where this idea comes from is that sometimes I feel like when I'm recording an episode or I'm offering bits of advice to cyclists that I sometimes wish I could see the bigger picture in their life and be able to help them, especially with big bottlenecks that a specific cyclist faces, I wish I could just jump in and actually get them moving instead of just answering one small part that may not even be the real reason things are stuck. I know how useful this is because I've seen it happen to myself over and over again when somebody else has helped me or even my friends when I've helped them or they've helped me. When someone just focuses on the things that make the biggest difference, it's like lighting a fire underneath them. So here's my idea It's a high-performance program for semi-pros. And the idea of sharing it here with you now is I want to see if it's valuable to you. The basic idea is I want to help three cyclists optimize their life for training and increase their power. I really think I can be effective in this regard, and I do believe I've got a track record in being effective. So here's the way I want to lay out the product, and I'm interested in knowing if you would like to sign up. It's based around a monthly program which includes a four-week power-based cycling program and a mobility and stability program. And moving into the off-season, getting hold of your strength and mobility is a great way to motivate and challenge yourself. But this is personalized just for you and your demands and desired outcome. So the training program will actually be co-authored by 
myself and my mentor, which happens to be my old coach who has a great track record working with elite riders. I'm not going to divulge her details on the podcast, but if you do want to know more about her, then I'm happy to let you know in person. I think that there is a lot of value in this alone. And without getting into the virtues of having someone write a program for you, that right there is an absolute time saver and a confidence builder. But the programming is just the start though, because once the program is written, that's when we take it to the next level. And I would work with you on optimizing your life for training. So figuring out in detail the best times to train on the bike or in the gym, when to take recovery, how you can batch your meals, anything that affects your training, how we can work together to reduce or eliminate anything that gets in the way of your training time. This doesn't mean knocking the kids out or not talking to your wife. It actually means including them into the overall plan. And part of this is delivering your training workouts when it counts. So all you have to do is focus on the workout itself. Thus, I really believe this will maximize your workouts. It's the 80-20 of what will make the biggest difference to your fitness. And this would be all delivered by email on an online training software like Trainer Road for your indoor workouts. Obviously, there would be another way to deliver the outdoor workouts that we would work through based on what actual equipment you have. But the final part of the program is a weekly group accountability call. Now, I have been using this with my own cycling on and off for the past six months or so, and I'm really seeing the benefit in this type of interaction with other cyclists. It not only brings different perspectives and training ideas and experiences, but racing tactics or, you know, you name it, and everyone has their own opinion, and it really just gives you a whole bunch of choices when you have a challenge that's in front of you and you want to figure out the best way to do it. Of course, you have access to me and my knowledge at any time, but having the perspective of other people doing what you're doing at the same time is definitely an advantage. And jumping on the phone and talking to other cyclists is really highly undervalued in my opinion. And especially because I will guarantee that you're not going to be on the call with a local competitor. So this alone is going to give you the edge when it comes to arriving on the start line ready and confident. But the idea here is to start a program with three foundation members, after which I will close off to work exclusively with these riders to give them the rock star treatment. And because having only three foundation members will help me refine the system to deliver better results in the long run, price-wise, I'm starting at $2.29 per month. But actually seeing results one-to-one is the exciting part of this for me because at the end of the day, I want cyclists to say, this program has changed my my life. And I really, really mean that. Would you spend $229 for a monthly high performance training program? If you think that it works for you, I have a page at semiprocycling.com. If you just go to the homepage and click on coaching in the menu, then you can check out the offer directly. Otherwise, email me at damien at semiprocycling.com. Let me know what you think. I really welcome all feedback because I want to adjust it and make it relevant to people. But also, even if you just want to discuss your cycling goals, we can jump on Skype and have a chat about them and see where to go from there. Now, that quote from the top of the show, before my voice disappears altogether, it's Nettie Edmonston. She's an Aussie road rider. She did ride on the track for a long, 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 long time. 
I think she's only 21, but she took a win in the final stage of the Lotto Bellasol Tour. And while it was a little bit of a gimme from the Orica Green Edge star rider, Emma Johansson, she was in the right place at the right time and definitely deserved this win. And it really shows great form and the potential that she's known for. And by the way, did I mention that the race finished on the Mur? Boom. Okay, that's it for this week. So till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box whichever one you're into. (laughs) 